I don't know about you when it comes to book or movie choice, but I'm an absolute sucker for a happy ending. Uh, I love Finding Nemo just has to be one of the greatest movies, if not the greatest movie of all time. I'm not going to ask you whether or not you disagree because I don't care, because it is. Uh, I mean, it all looked lost when little Nemo caught up in the barrier reef was whisked away to Sydney. One super courageous dad and his amnesiac sidekick against all odds find him, take him home. Oh, it's terrific. I love a feel-good film with a fairy tale ending. And I've reasoned that uh, I actually hate a feel-bad film with a sad ending, uh, like Everest. Everybody dies. It's a, I should have given you a spoiler alert, but at the end of it, it just draws you into this movie. You, you feel deeply with the character, and then it's just sad. It's horrendous. It actually ended, and, and I said out loud in the cinema, is that it? I've actually realized I don't just not like happy end, uh, sad endings. I hate sad middles and sad starts too, like Up. Hands up if you've seen the opening four minutes and 16 seconds of Up. Oh my goodness. If you haven't, don't. It's too hard. It, like, it's, just, it's just too much. Carl and Ellie, oh, grab a hanky, grab a box, actually, because in those first four minutes and 16 sec seconds, you just go through this whole spectrum of emotions from absolute delight at these childhood sweethearts to sorrow from wide smiles to uncontrollable sobbing, yes, even men. Now, why is that? Well, we love a feel-good film with a fairy tale ending, and we don't like the feel-bads with the sad ending, probably because it's part of the emotional attachment of a story. You know, you identify very deeply with the people that you're reading about or watching. You have hopes for them. You're rooting for them. You're moved by their courage, and somehow your life in those little moments become a bit wrapped up in theirs. But maybe it's just sheer escapism. The feel-good movie is like that anesthetic cream that they put on kids' hands before they give them the sharp scratch. You know, just for that, that's just that temporary numbness to the realities of life. I wonder how you would like the book of Job then to end. I, I know many of you know how it ends, maybe, but some of you will not. But I wonder how would you like it to end? Happy ending? Or sad ending. I guess we might be split. Oh, sure, we'd really want a happy ending because we love the happy endings, but sometimes there's something about that that makes it a little bit harder to identify with. I mean, happy ever afters are the stuff of Hollywoods, aren't they? Uh, they're a far-fetched lie at times compared to the real life that we live and we experience. I know people, and you know people, whose suffering is, in all likelihood, lifelong. And apart from a miracle, things are not going to get better. They're going to stay hard, and they're maybe going to get worse. True indeed for all of us. Well, what does God's word have to say to us? Let's turn to Job and find out. I mean, we remember that Job has suffered more than most wealth, health, and all 10 children gone. But not his faith, 
I mean, anyone in his shoes might ask, why, as he has, why put up with this suffering and even the idiocy of his friends? You know, Job, with his demands, has made himself big and made God small, but God has reminded him, as we looked at last week, that God is God and he is not. Therefore, as we see at the start of chapter 42, he has repented. He says, sorry, he's satisfied to trust in God despite his suffering. And in verse 7, the story continues. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Keren Hapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and full of years. Well, it's a fairy tale ending, really, isn't it? It's a happy ending. It's a feel-goods. And I'm really pleased it ended this way. Uh, not because I hate sad endings, but because... For us, it gives sufferers like us real hope. This passage is full of hope uh, in two ways, for two sets of people, really. First of all, hope for sinners, and secondly, hope for sufferers. And in, those are the two main points I'm going to cover today. And ultimately, this is what's going to show us. It's going to show us that in the gospel, the fairy tale ending that sufferers long for is true. It's actually true. So let's uh, look at number one in verses seven to nine. There's hope for sinners. Now, verses seven to nine to me are a surprising inclusion. The account would flow very naturally from the repentance of one to six to the restoration of 10 to 17. But to rush by verse 7 to 9 would be a mistake. In fact, it would be to make this book just all about Job rather than all about God, which is what it's about. You see, Job has repented, but he's not the only one who's spoken out of turn in the book. No, the three friends have. And the first thing we see is that God calls Job friends to account, and in doing so shows us that sin is not something that God overlooks. It's not something he can overlook. Now, Job's friends, if you remember the track of the story, are guilty of misrepresenting God. As, he, as we see in verse 7 there, 
you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, hang on, hasn't Job just said sorry for the things that weren't true in verses 1 to 6? Well, no. Read it carefully. He's repented of the arrogance that made him speak out of turn, like he was God and God was not. But he's not saying things that are untrue about God, unlike Eliphaz and his pals. They said, here's how life works. The wicked suffer and the righteous prosper. Therefore, as we see you in your sufferings, we can see that you must be wicked. Therefore, God must be punishing you. Therefore, you should repent. Confess this secret sin that you're hiding and admit it. And then God shows up and says, no, no, I'm not punishing them. And actually, what you've said to Job is not on. If Job had listened to your counsel and gone ahead with the things that you were telling him to do, you would have made him sin. Okay? So they're sinning by what they're saying. They're sinning with their counsel. Now, sometimes we're guilty of the same. We've looked at this a little bit earlier in our series. Uh, to misrepresent God in what we say to brothers and sisters who suffer is sin. Therefore, we need to take care. Because sin arouses God's anger. God is always angry with sin. It's an offense against him on the vertical. Even though we might be saying things on a horizontal level, we may well sin against other people, but ultimately every sin is an offense against him. It's his law we break, and his is the bar we stand before. So if we have any hope for a happy ending, we need to understand that that sin needs dealt with. And praise God, in verses 8 to 9, that's exactly what happens. Sin, he tells us this and shows us this. Sin is something that God deals with. He's in the business of doing this. Now, God has made a way for the sins of Job's friends to be taken away. They need two things in order for that to happen. A substitutionary sacrifice and a righteous mediator. The substitution, you know what a substitute is, of course. If you're playing rugby for Scotland and you're out of puff, Gregor Townsend will take you off, but he doesn't just leave your position empty. He fills that place. He sends someone on your place in order to play the position you were playing. It's a substitute. It's dead simple. But then there's the sacrifice aspect of this. The, the sacrifice is something that happens in our place. Okay, and this is how God deals with sin. The sacrifice takes your place, it's a substitute, and suffers what you deserved. For these guys, it's animals, and they suffer complete consumed. They are completely burnt up and consumed. Now, they need to symbolically transfer their guilt to the animal they sacrifice. And God, in his wisdom, chooses to accept that it satisfies God's justice and the righteous penalty for sin. So they need primarily a substitutionary sacrifice. The second thing, a righteous mediator. Do you see that in verse 8? My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept this prayer. Now why include Job in this? I've just said that sin is between a person and God. Well, I think it's for two reasons. First of all, to vindicate Job. They're saying you've punished, etc., etc., and they're they're, they're saying he's got some secret sin that he's hiding. But God says, no, he's vindicating his righteousness as the innocent sufferer. But secondly, to rub in the seriousness of their sin. God does want them to own the fact that while their sin is primarily against God, it is also against Job. So to ask them 
Uh, to, to get Job to pray for them must have been what for them? Humbling, right? Humbling. These friends had presumed Job's guilt and felt the need to mediate between God and Job. But now, faced with their own guilt, they need Job to mediate between them and God. And here's the key. If the innocent sufferer forgives, God forgives. And Job does just that. So do you see what God is showing us here? He's not only showing us that Job, how Job's sinful friends are made right with God. He is showing us that. But by showing us that, he's showing us how all sinners, like you and like me, are made right with God. It's through the substitutionary sacrifice of a righteous mediator. And it points forward to Jesus Christ, who is both the innocent and righteous sufferer, who has pleaded on behalf of those who've sinned against God for forgiveness. And he himself is the sacrifice, the bearer, the carrier of our sin in his body on that cross to the point that when he dies there, all our sin is laid upon him as the sacrifice. And he's the one on whom God's punishment is poured out. He's the one who is, if you like, consumed. Consumed by death. that we might be forgiven. Romans 3.25 says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. No one else can make us right with God's. Christ is the only hope for sinners who hope for a happy ending. So if you've not put your faith and trust in him today, if you haven't realized that this is actually what the cross in Christianity is all about, come to him Put your faith in him. Only in the gospel is the fairy tale ending that we hope for possible. That's the hope for sinners. The gospel at the end of Job is beautiful, isn't it? But secondly, here's hope for sufferers in verses 10 to 17. In 10 to 17, you have what's called commonly the restoration of Job. But as with all scripture, these verses aren't just historical telling us what happened. They are theological telling us something about God. Something about God through something about Job. And here's what they tell us. They tell us to hope in God because God restores suffering people. God restores suffering people. In 10 to 17, we have this dramatic change in Job's life. His suffering brought on feelings of utter loneliness, but in verses 10 to 11, he's got his family around them. His brothers and sisters are out. They're coming to eat with him. He's got community. His suffering had left him destitute without the means to live, but verse 12 says he's twice as wealthy as he was before. It's not instantaneous. It takes time, of course. And his suffering left him grieving the loss of his 10 wonderfully harmonious kids, if you remember from chapter 1 and 2. And verse, three, verse 13 sorry, tells us he's got twice as many kids, seven more sons and three more daughters to go with the 10 in heaven he misses. And verse 14 even provides some new information on the three girls. What's that about, you might ask? Good, keep asking those kind of questions of Scripture. 
you know, we get more information than we do about the boys. We get their names. Jemima, which means little dove or sign of peace. You have Keziah, which is basically a translation of uh, the cassia tree, which is an aromatic thing like cinnamon, I suppose. So she smells nice, okay? And then you have Keren Hapak, which means little makeup box, okay? So there's a picture here of beauty, and in fact, that's what it goes on to say. These girls are gorgeous. And their father goes on to do something phenomenal, actually. He gifts them an inheritance along with their brothers. That was unheard of in the time of Job. It was something that uh, Moses would later bring in, uh, God would later bring into the law through Moses to make sure that the daughters did not lose out on the father's inheritance, but shared in it. So you read those verses and you just think, man alive, this guy is just wonderfully blessed. We read chapter one and just thought, this guy is just, he's so wealthy, but he's such a blessing to his kids. He's led them well, discipled them well. He offers sacrifices for them. And here he is again. There's joy in Job's life again. It's a happy ending for him. He died a happy man. His kids and grandkids around him. Isn't it lovely? Now, who is responsible for this dramatic upturn? Is it Job? No, it can't be, because whenever you read this passage, you, you read of him in completely passive terms. All these things are happening to him. The text tells us very, very clearly who is active, doesn't it? It tells us that God is the one. Verse 10, in the immediate aftermath, when his family are coming around him, the Lord restored Job, his fortunes, and gave him twice as much as he had before. And then in the years that followed, verse 12 and following, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part which tells us something absolutely crucial. Crucial for us to understand in times of suffering or blessing, the Lord has it in his power to restore suffering people. Those who are not suffering need to be reminded of that because it's our shared responsibility to remind those who are. And those who are suffering need to hear that because it's essential to our endurance. God has it in his power to restore his suffering people. He's happy to restore his suffering people. That's why the call for us is to hope in God. Hope in him. He's not absent or ignorant. He's with us. He knows exactly what's going on, no matter what the situation. He's not stingy with his blessings or wasteful with that matter. He's not flagrant with it. He knows the best way to bless us and the best means to do that. And God is happy to bless his suffering people. That's why we should all the more hope in him. Now, some might say, well, you know, I haven't been quite as godly in my suffering like Job has. There's no way I've responded to him the way that Job initially responded. And certainly throughout my suffering, I've said a lot worse than even Eliphaz the Temanite or his two pals. There's no way I deserve the kind of reward that Job gets here. Well, to say that would be to actually understand, misunderstand the passage. Because while God is pleased with Job's endurance, it isn't a reward. It's not compensation. It's still grace. It's still God's undeserved favor. While God is pleased with Job's endurance, it's not a reward. God is no man's debtor. This is God's 
gift. He didn't have to bless him in this way. As we who suffer long know. As we who read our Bibles know. It is full of victory. You only need to look at the summary in Hebrews chapter 11 of all these great heroes of the faith who did unimaginable things with God's power and help, blessed incredibly. But you also read of those who gave their necks to the swords, torn apart by lions, who suffered incredibly as they waited for that final redemption. God is gracious and God is kind to bless sufferers with hope and on some occasions with his kindness shown through restoration. I wonder if you trust his hand. I wonder if you trust his kindness. Now, some say, yes, I believe that. I believe that God in his grace can not only use my sufferings for his work and his purposes, I believe he can restore my joy. And yes, even in this life, and others say, well, yeah, I really want to, but I'm finding this really hard because my suffering is really hard. The call at the end of Job is hope in God, dear sufferers. Hope in God. Remember who he is and the restoration that he holds out. But remember how realistic he is, as revealed in his very realistic scriptures as to what life is like. The sad fact is that many of us will go through life not receiving the kind of Job-like restoration that we see in here. The sufferings that we have will not go away. You're not supposed to read this passage at the end of Job and say, look at what happened to Job. This is how it's going to be for you. There is absolutely no guarantee in Job or of all of Scripture that suffering will be removed in this life. Actually, you have to say that from the whole scope of the Scripture and what it says on the subject of suffering, we should not expect less hardships but more. Creation groans. We groan Creation waits its final redemption. We wait that final redemption, as Romans says, and we suffer. We get the cancer that doesn't go away or comes back. We have more miscarriages that seem to cruelly rob us of the children we long for. Our loved ones fall into an unimaginable addiction and sever the relationship that we ought to have with them. Sufferers of depression sink sometimes deeper into it. Others will never know a night without the nightmares of abuse that was suffered in the past. Others through another person's foolish sin will be plunged into something absolutely life-altering. Some will see loved ones reject Jesus and die 
never having put their faith and trust in him. And all of us will die. Even so, even if the restoration we long for isn't our experience in this life, it will be in the next. It will be. For God himself has promised suffering is something God removes. Job 42 is a picture of what God has promised to all who love him. It's, scripture is saturated with the promises of this complete ejection and removal of suffering like in Romans 8. And it's groaning. And on that day when Christ returns, he'll bring that final act to pass. Or even Revelation 21 as it explains that he, when Christ returns, will bring with him the restoration of all things, the new heaven and the new earth, where God himself will bring it down to us. It's not something we can manufacture down here. There's no utopian society being built from the bottom up. It's coming down, and it's coming with Christ and Christ alone. And coming with the new heaven and new earth, coming with the Savior that we long for is his comfort, brothers and sisters. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things, old order, has passed away. And that's what shows us that in the gospel, the fairy tale ending all sufferers long for is true. It's absolutely true. And suffering is something that God removes, but I have to say before closing, there is a condition to that. It is, I, we can only say that that's true for those who've put their trust in Jesus, who believe in him and who love him. If you're here today and you don't believe in Jesus, if you've not said, Christ died for my sins and it is the best news I have ever heard in my entire life, then I have to be honest and frank with you here. None of what I've said just now currently applies to you. You have no promise, no hope that at death, suffering will be removed. You, or you might have heard that kind of thing said at funerals. I heard it a few months ago at a couple I was at where people console each other with things like, oh, well, at least all their suffering is over. Or, well, well, they're in a better place. The Bible says, if you don't know Jesus, none of those things are true. They are a far-fetched, barefaced lie. The Bible says that the worst of human suffering 
for those who don't know Jesus is not in this life, but the next. It's beyond death, in a place called hell, from which there is no escape and in which there is no relief. That's why if anyone who doesn't believe in Jesus dies, they don't have this hope for the happy ending held out by God here. And that's one of the reasons why you should come to him today. You should come to him because he is real. He exists. He's the God of love. He has demonstrated that love. Remember point one, by sending a substitute to die in your place where you ought to have been consumed. He did that, sending his son. As Romans 3.25 says, you take hold of that by faith. You're like, what? I don't even have to do anything? No. You humbly come before him saying sorry for your sins, believing in your heart, and you'll be saved. Again, what a mark of God's grace. Only in the gospel is the fairy tale ending for sinners true. Only in Jesus. But for those of us who do believe, how does this promise of restoration and the removal of suffering in the future help us right now? What should we do? The short answer to this and the summary of Job is hope in God and hang on to that hope. James 5 tells us precisely what to do here. It's a clear application of the entire book of Job. As you know, James says, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So we hope in God. We hang on to that hope with perseverance. Why? Because God is full of compassion. He feels deeply for us and acts on it. And he is full of mercy. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve when at times in our sufferings we speak wrongly of him. He proves that as we suffer. He will prove that at the end when he removes it once and for all. And that's why we'll resolve together by his grace to praise him, whatever your lot, whatever mine. Because we know that in the gospel, the fairy tale ending we all long for is true. Let's bow our heads.